Well, you know, every one of us, at least to one extent or another, is a product of our culture. And, and I don't just mean American culture, by the way, because there are many different uh, sort of micro-cultures that we all grow up and live in, right? Uh, your family culture being one example. If you grew up in church, then your church culture, right? Uh, whether you went straight from high school into the military or university or into a career, there's a distinct culture associated with each of those life experiences. And we are all, at the very least, influenced by those individual cultures we live in. And to some extent, we're shaped by them. The fact is, it's always been that way. Even in the first century, in a city like Capernaum, where Jesus lived for a time, there were not only Jews and Gentiles with very different cultures living side by side, but uh, there were religious Jews and non-religious Jews. There were religious Gentiles and non-religious Gentiles. In fact, there were people there from all walks of life and social status and background living among each other, and they were all heavily influenced by their own cultures. And then along came Jesus, not from any human culture, but from heaven, inserting himself into human culture to show them, and of course us, a better way to live and believe. And what he showed them was himself, right? Because, of course, he is the way to a better life, to eternal life. And so he invited them to follow him into a whole new life and a whole new belief. But here's the catch. In order to follow Jesus into a new way of living and believing, they had to leave their old ways of living and believing behind because you cannot follow something forward without leaving something else behind, right? And yet the vast majority of the people he invited to follow him never did. Why? Because they weren't willing to abandon their old ways of living and believing. And as we'll see in our story today, a large percentage of those who refused to follow him were the religious people, the men and women who grew up in the synagogue at learning about God. And so the very people who should have been flocking to Jesus were instead rejecting the Messiah without even realizing it because they were more committed to and familiar with the religious culture they'd created than they were committed to and familiar with the actual word of God. They had practiced and preached their religious traditions and doctrines for so long that they no longer could distinguish between the voice of God and the voices within their religious culture. And yet as bad as that sounds, I believe the same could be said of at least some segments of the modern church today where we have religious leaders at both, uh, at both the liberal and conservative ends of the spectrum, by the way, or, or the progressive and orthodox ends of the spectrum and everywhere in between who are teaching traditions and doctrines that are based on cultural constructs far more than they are on the word of God. And as a result, we have professing believers who are more familiar with and committed to those traditions and doctrines than they are to the word of God itself. When I was in seminary in Europe, it was not uncommon for the students, and uh, keep in mind, this was grad school for preachers. So when I say students, it was basically all middle-aged pastors and missionaries. And it was not uncommon after a long day of classes and lectures and research for many of the students and even some of the professors to head down to the local pub for a pint of beer and some legitimately incredible conversation about Jesus and biblical theology. And although this was a British university, there were students there from all over the world, including some 
from some very different religious contexts, like the American Bible Belt and parts of Asia and some of the African cultures and others as well, where alcohol and Christianity have historically been viewed as mutually exclusive. In other words, they don't mix. And interestingly, there were questions raised by some of the non-European students at times to the effect of, how do you reconcile following Jesus and drinking alcohol, which would spur what were actually some really great conversations. And yet on another night in a completely unrelated conversation, the subject at one point turned to American culture and one of the European students asked me if I had ever owned a gun. To which I replied, well, yeah, I probably own enough guns to overthrow a small government like yours. And with complete sincerity, this pastor, who, by the way, is a good friend of mine and who loves Jesus just as much as I do, asked me, how can you claim to be a follower of Christ and own a gun? Which led to another great conversation. But you understand, we confuse probably much more often than we realize religious traditions that are based on religious culture with the actual teachings of God's word until we end up focused on doctrines that aren't even in the Bible. And what's worse is the fact that we can become so committed to our religious traditions and culturally based doctrines that we think we're pointing people to Jesus when all we're actually pointing them toward is our own religious culture. It's precisely what was happening with the religious people in our story today as we continue our sermon series working our way through the gospel according to Mark where we find Jesus consistently pointing the people of God back to God's word and away from the religious culture that they had actually placed their faith in. And in the end, some followed him while many others didn't. But you can be sure of this. Those who chose not to follow Jesus believed in all sincerity with all their hearts that what they were doing was right. They were convinced they were right. You see, as, as believers, I don't think we wake up in the morning deciding to live our lives that day outside of the perfect will of Christ. I just think sometimes we believe we're right because we've been told we are by our culture. When in reality, God may be calling us to make some significant changes in our lives. Because listen, Truly following Jesus can at times challenge some of the deeply held things you've been taught your entire life, and it will most certainly require you at times to walk away from certain aspects of the life you've grown accustomed to, because truly walking with Jesus Christ means we don't get to choose which parts of the gospel we want to follow. The fourth century theologian and philosopher St. Augustine once said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it is not the gospel you believe, but yourself. Okay, I know it may be hard to hear, but I think it's fair to say that sometimes we may believe we're following Jesus when in reality we're just following our religious culture, whether liberal or conservative, to the disservice of his perfect will in our lives which is exactly the message Jesus was trying to get across to the religious community in our story today because his own life was so counter to their culture and yet they were so committed to that culture that they missed God even when he was standing right there in front of them, right there in the flesh. 
So let's pick the story back up where we left off last time and just uh, let's just honestly ask ourselves as we go, what changes could I be making in my own life to look less like my culture, more like Jesus? Mark chapter 2, we'll start by reading the first 12 verses. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And so after going around to all of the other synagogues and the cities around Galilee, preaching the word of God and performing miracles, which we saw back uh, in verse 39 of chapter 1, Jesus returns home to Capernaum, most likely to Peter's house, and immediately the house is not only packed with people wanting to see and experience Jesus' miracles, but there were so many people they had to pack in around the outside of the house as well to the point that you couldn't even get close to the door. And yet there are these four men who had brought their paralyzed friend on a mat to be healed by Jesus. But when they get to the house, you can imagine their dismay when they realize how close he is and yet they can't get close enough to him. And so what do they do next? Well, it's actually shocking what they do. When you understand how houses were built in Palestine in the first century, typically they were one-story structures with a set of exterior stairs that went up to the roof, which they would use like we use the decks on our houses. So they would go up there for cool air or fresh air. Uh, they would often eat their meals there and even entertain guests. And so because the roofs were considered living space, the actual construction of the roof had to be substantial enough to carry the weight of a lot of people all at once. And so there were these big, heavy wooden beams resting on the exterior walls spanning over the living area with smaller lengths of wood and reed running across those beams to create a grid into which was woven heavy thatch, which formed the basic structure of the roof deck. And then several inches of mud was taken or clay and packed down hard against the thatch. And then they would finally take these heavy rollers to roll over the mud to pack it even tighter and smooth it out. So then it would uh, bake in the sun into this very thick, very hard, almost clay tile uh, type of surface on top of the wood and thatch structure. So you have to understand, when verse 4 says that they removed the roof above Jesus and made a hole big enough to lower a man in the bed he was laying on down through that hole, they didn't just lift up a hatch door 
in the roof. No, they were actually tearing the roof apart. In fact, if you read it in the ancient Greek, it very much gives the sense of them ripping apart the structure of the roof, which probably took quite a bit of time and of course must have made an awful lot of racket, not to mention the roof debris that must have been falling down on the heads of the people inside the entire time they're ripping the roof open while Jesus is inside preaching. Someday I'm going to write a sermon on just this story. The absolute desperation of these men to get to Jesus is astounding, right? Not to mention the fact that they could have gotten in a lot of trouble and personal expense over what they were doing. Capernaum was known at the time as a very upscale city on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Make no mistake, Peter, who had a thriving business, had a really nice house that was literally having its roof torn apart. That's how desperate these men were to see their friend walk again. And so finally, after fighting through the crowds while carrying their friend and his mat just to get up onto the roof, and then at their own risk, tearing the roof of the house open while Jesus was inside preaching, and then lowering the man down through the hole, which could not have been easy. After all of that, Jesus turns and says to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. What? That's not exactly what I was looking for. There's nothing in this story to indicate that the paralyzed man or his friends were looking for forgiveness from sins. They wanted healing, not forgiveness, but Jesus doesn't heal them. Not yet. At that very moment, I guarantee you everyone present was in shock. The non-religious people were shocked because they expected Jesus to do what he'd been doing all along, to perform a miracle of physical healing. And the religious people were shocked because Jesus just claimed to be able to forgive sins, which everyone knows only God can do. Listen, at that moment, after all the all the racket, all the noise, all the disruption of the roof being torn apart and this man being lowered into the house in the middle of Jesus's sermon. As soon as Jesus says those words, son, your sins are forgiven. I bet you could have heard a pin drop. Because every person in that room had an expectation for Jesus and yet he didn't meet one of them. Now, we know that ultimately he heals the man, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But look, Jesus was never ruled by the expectations of the culture around him. Jesus met people's needs, not their expectations. The question is, do you? Because listen, if you're going to live your life more like Jesus, then you must be willing to address what is needed in your own life, even when that is at the peril of what is expected. Right, What the religious community expected from the Messiah was validation of their traditions and their cultural doctrines, and yet what they needed was the truth. The truth that they were actually lost, more in love with their religious culture than they were with God, and as a result, they desperately needed a Savior, which is exactly what Jesus offered them, and they killed Him for it. 
See, meeting people's needs in spite of their expectations will probably never win you any popularity contest. When Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount and he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Do you understand that wasn't a reference by Jesus to atheists or agnostics or universalists or pluralists or people from other religions? No, Jesus was talking about people who profess to be Christians. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name, Jesus do many mighty works in your name. Jesus wasn't telling them what they wanted to hear, but it sure was what they needed to hear. And I'm telling you, it's no different today because we can meet every expectation of our religious culture. We can go to church and participate in the ministry and vote for biblical values and help other people and give in the offering and support Christian causes. And yes, we should do all of that. But listen, at the end of the day, if your Christian commitment is more focused on a religious culture than it is on a relationship with Jesus Christ, then I'm telling you it is all a colossal waste of time because we, do, we don't come to know Christ through religious exercises. That's what other religions teach, that you reach God through religious behavior, but with Christianity, it's actually just the opposite. Our righteous behavior is supposed to be the natural result of simply loving Jesus. And so the reason you love the church is because you love Jesus. The reason you love the ministry is because you love Jesus. The reason you love the Bible, it's because you love Jesus. You understand the reason you love to help others, it's because you love Jesus. The reason you love to give in the offering is because you love Jesus. The reason you love to serve and support your fellow believers is because you love Jesus. And I know it may be hard to hear this, but we need to hear it because if you don't love the church or you don't love the ministry or you don't love the Bible or serving or giving or supporting other believers, then you may not actually love Jesus. Jesus as much as you think you do. You may be serving because of religious expectations more than you are because of a relationship with Christ, which, listen, that's a personal burnout waiting to happen at best and a complete disillusionment with God and his people at worst. You see, your service to Christ must be fueled out of your greatest need, which is a relationship with him. Otherwise, you're simply trying to meet other people's uh, expectations of you. And in the end, that's not going to get you very far. This is what Jesus was trying to tell them, but they weren't buying it because they were more committed to their religious culture than they were to God himself. And so they questioned in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
And of course, knowing what they're thinking, Jesus says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And of course, the man is instantly healed. Now to them, it was far easier for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven, right? Because obviously there's no way to prove or disprove that claim. Whereas telling the man to get up and walk would require a lot more risk on Jesus's part, at least on the surface, because it's easy to verify, obviously, whether or not the man actually gets up and walks out. But the truth is what Jesus actually meant when he said that was exactly the opposite. It's far easier for me to tell the man to get up and walk out of the power of my own deity, who I am. Far easier for me to do that than it is for me to tell him his sins are forgiven because of the sacrifice I know I'm going to have to make on a Roman cross in order to make good on that promise. But of course, they didn't understand any of that because they couldn't see past their religious expectations to their own desperate need for a savior. And if we're not careful we can fall into those very same religious patterns, living our lives being motivated to do what we do according to other people's expectations instead of our own relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's keep reading verses 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. As he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." So uh, Jesus leaves the house uh, and goes out preaching again, maybe because there was a giant hole in Peter's roof that needed repairing. We don't know. But while he's out preaching, he walks past a tax booth and calls uh, the tax collector Levi, later known as Matthew, the same Matthew that wrote the gospel according to Matthew, to leave this incredibly lucrative career and successful business all at once and come follow Jesus. And Levi not only does that, but in the next scene, we find Jesus at Levi's house, along with many more tax collectors and an assortment of other sinners reclining at table, having a feast. And so uh, to understand just how profoundly big of a deal this was, we need to understand what it meant to be a tax collector to the Jews in the first century. OK, one of the ways that the Roman Empire abused the Jewish people was through oppressive taxes. And yet the way they collected those taxes was even more offensive to the Jews than the taxes themselves because the tax collectors were Jews who would submit bids to the Roman government when there was an opening for a new tax collector position. And so they would submit these estimates based on how much money and taxes they believed they could collect in that particular area. And if the Roman officials liked your bid, you can bet it was always the highest bid, they would give you the job as tax collector, and then they would assign you a quota based on that bid of how much taxes you actually had to collect in that area. Now, here's the worst part. 
Once the tax collector met his quota, everything else that he could collect was his to keep. So you can imagine the motivation for these Jewish tax collectors to extract and extort just about by any means necessary every ounce of money they could out of their own people. And as you would expect, it was an extremely lucrative business, not only for the Romans, of course, but for the Jewish tax collectors as well. And as a result, these tax collectors were absolutely despised by their own people. In fact, they were considered to be among the vilest of human beings. In the ancient Talmud, the Talmud is the the central text of rabbinical Judaism. In the Talmud, tax collectors are officially listed in the same category as murderers and robbers. In fact, they were required, tax collectors, to give up their Jewish identity. They had to give up their membership in the synagogue. They could not be a witness in a court case. They had to relinquish their social status in the community. They were ostracized by their families who were also disgraced, and they were considered traitors by the Jews to the point that anyone who was even friendly with a tax collector was officially considered to be unclean, the same status held by lepers. And so for Jesus... To call a Jewish tax collector to become one of his disciples was utterly unthinkable to the religious establishment. In fact, for Jesus to touch a leper as he did in chapter 1 was less galling to the Jews than it was to call a tax collector to follow him. Yet it gets even worse. Because Jesus then goes to this tax collector's house and along with a whole bunch of other tax collectors and sinners, he reclines at table with them, which means this was not an an ordinary or a casual meal. It was a formal feast with Jesus as the guest of honor. See, which the religious Jews, they, they simply could not reconcile it. But you see, Jesus loved people no one else would. The question is, do you? Just to be clear so that we understand exactly what we're talking about here. This wasn't a poor, innocent leper who contracted a disease he didn't ask for that Jesus was inviting into his inner circle. No, Levi knew exactly what he was getting into and what he was doing to his own people when he willingly became a tax collector. The truth is, Levi was a despicable human being. In fact, The other disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, John, who were also fishermen running successful businesses in the same town, they would have had to pay these oppressive taxes off of their own hard-earned wages to the detriment of their own families to Levi for years. You understand, they all knew each other long before Jesus came along, and now he's calling these former enemies to become his followers together, which probably also explains the feast, because Levi was as shocked as anyone that Jesus was calling him, of all people, to be a disciple of this great rabbi. And so overwhelmed with gratitude by the love and invitation of Jesus, Levi throws the biggest feast he can and invites all of his friends and former enemies to come and eat together. And so just to put all of it into a context that is relevant to us today, think about the person who you would consider to be the greatest traitor to your country, to your religion, to your family, to your income, to your community, to your very way of life, maybe someone who's been trying to take away everything that you have held dear for years, the most 
underhanded, despicable, lying, cheating, horrible human being that you can possibly think of. And I'll, I'll let you fill in the blank with whoever that is to you. But then imagine, without that person asking for forgiveness or showing any change or remorse whatsoever, you go to them and invite them to become a member of your own family. That's exactly how Jesus loved people then, and it is exactly how he's calling us to, leave, uh, to love people today. And of course, when it comes to loving certain kinds of people like uh, the poor and the widow and the orphan, you'll be hard-pressed to find a protest within the modern church today, which is good. And yet there are other kinds of people we're probably not always so keen on loving, right? Mainly people who hurt us people who disrupt our way of life, people who take from us, people who don't deserve our love. Still, Jesus loved them. He gave them dignity and he invited them in to be with him. I can't, I can't imagine what Peter and Andrew and James and John must have been thinking, sitting there in Levi's house, eating at his table with all of these other tax collectors and sinners after everything this man had done to take away from them and their families for years. And yet we hear not one complaint from them because I think they were beginning to understand that if you're going to become more like Jesus, then you have to love the way that he loved, which isn't easy. But of course, loving people rarely is, and some people can be a lot harder to love than others, right? But Jesus never told us we could stop loving people just because it gets difficult sometimes. In fact, I am certain that it wasn't easy for him to be crucified on a Roman cross for you or for me. But he did it anyway. Why? Because even though we didn't deserve it, he loved us enough to die for you and for me. And look, the truth is, just like Levi, there are a lot of hurtful, hateful, horrible people in this world who are one heartbeat away from becoming some of the greatest disciples of Christ this world has ever known. And the only thing keeping them from that new destiny in Christ is the fact that they have yet to experience his love which is where you and I come in. Let's finish the story for today, verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to them, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. In other words, you can't take the old ways your old ways of trying to earn your way into heaven, to earn your way into God's favor and drag that in to the new way that I am showing you, the new pathway to God. The two don't mix. The old way 
won't fit into the new way. Verse 23, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So the religious community continues to question Jesus's behavior and his motivation behind that behavior because he didn't seem to be following their religious rules. And yet those rules were actually based on their own traditions, not God's word. The law of Moses only required fasting in the time period leading up to the day of atonement. But over the ensuing centuries, the Jews had made fasting a part of their religious tradition during times of uh, national significance, during times of mourning and many others, to the point that the Pharisees in the first century had made fasting a personal requirement twice a week as a sign of their own piety, their own holiness. And then they see Jesus and his disciples walking through the fields, plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. And so they accuse him and his followers of violating the Sabbath law, when actually all that they were violating was rabbinic tradition. Again, over the centuries, from the time the law was given to Moses at Mount Sinai, the Jewish rabbis took it upon themselves to add to the law long lists of additional rules and prohibitions to presumably help people keep the law. And yet what probably started out as good intentions became this ridiculous set of rules that became binding to the Jews as binding as the actual word of God itself. And so there was this rule called the Sabbath day journey, which was said uh, that a maximum distance a Jew could travel on the Sabbath was 1,999 paces. Basically, uh, that's a little over a half a mile. And if someone took one step further than 1,999 paces, they were considered to be a Sabbath breaker. They also determined that since no commerce should be taking place on the Sabbath, that they would include any and all unnecessary labor in that law, which of course included plucking heads of grain from the fields. And so as Jesus and his disciples are traveling through these fields well beyond a half a mile, plucking grain along the way, they were seen as breaking God's law concerning the Sabbath, even though those religious traditions were absolutely nowhere to be found. In God's word. And so his response to the Pharisees was simply to point them back to the actual word of God because Jesus followed God's word, not man's traditions. Of course, the question is do you? Is your life influenced and informed more by the word of God or by the culture you grew up in? And I just want to mention here, it's not that all human culture is bad. In fact, God created human culture when he created human beings. But our culture is supposed to be shaped by his word, not the other way around. Yet just like the Pharisees, we've allowed our culture in many ways to become a greater authority in our lives than his word itself. And so Jesus is trying to 
to call them back, to re-examine the culture they were living in in light of his word because what the Pharisees were doing was just the opposite. They viewed God's word in light of the religious culture they'd created for themselves. And so everything about how they viewed his word was interpreted through the lens of their traditions and cultural beliefs. It's exactly what people do today. We, we treat the holy, sacred, unchanging, God-breathed scriptures as if they're somehow subject to the constantly changing will of the majority or even to our own religious traditions and cultural beliefs. But you understand it is the very height of arrogance for us to read a passage of scripture and then ask the question, what does this passage of scripture mean to me? We should never ask that question. No, instead of what does this passage of Scripture mean to me, we should be asking what does this passage of Scripture mean, period. Because it only means what God intends for it to mean, not what we intend for it to mean. And so look, our job is to read it and study it and meditate upon it and pray through it until we understand what it means according to God's intent and then shape our very lives and our culture around that. And so as you, you think about your own life, think about not only what you do, but think deeply and think honestly about why you do what you do. And if you see uh, any determination of how much of your life is actually shaped by the word of God and how much of it is actually shaped by the traditions and culture that you grew up in and live in today. And, and again, it's not that all uh, culture is bad, not at all. But if you want your life to look more like Jesus, then allow your life to continually be shaped more and more and more and more by his word, even to the exclusion at times, if necessary, of what is culturally acceptable. Because the fact is, we're all influenced, and to some degree, we're all shaped by our culture, which is okay until our culture contradicts the word of God. Then we have a choice to make to become more like the world or more like Jesus, but to be sure it's one or the other. There really is no in-between. You understand, even our religious culture, as good as it can be, if there's any part of our religious culture that is not actually in line with God's word, then it is not God's way. And so we have to choose each day whether we're going to become more like this world or more like Jesus. Sometimes choosing to be more like Jesus, following him forward is going to mean that you have to leave some other things behind, which is just what Jesus did. He lived his life decidedly counter to the culture. Even at times, counter to the religious culture, he met people's needs, but rarely their expectations. Loving people who no one else would love. All the while, following God's word, even when doing so was not culturally acceptable, which is what life looks like when you consistently make those choices every day that follow God's word instead of the world or the world's expectations of you. And look, uh, that's not always easy to do. It certainly won't make you popular. At times, you'll be greatly misunderstood and your life will look a lot more like Jesus.
Let's pray.